0: We want you to know you absolutely matter to God, and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. If I were to ask you, what is causing division and fights and quarrels right now in in 2023? I, I have a suspicion, I know some of the reasons you might say, politics, we are increasingly polarized and partisan. Um, there were lots of things around the pandemic that were really contentious. Um, things around race are getting polarized. Uh, it seems values around how to raise our kids, what is socially acceptable, uh, what we pay for versus what is taxed. Sometimes arguments are framed in you know sort of these ad hominem put-downs of like, you know, woke versus intolerant, um, which is unhelpful. I, I've been listening to this really interesting podcast about J.K. Rowling of all people. You know the one? Do you know the one I'm talking about? Where you know, in the first phase of her career, she was shunned by the, you could say, the right because uh, they thought she she was turning kids into witches and warlocks. And then she's shunned lately by, the, you could say, the left because she had the audacity to uh, call a biological woman a woman instead of a um, person who menstruates or whatever the new nomenclature is. And uh, it, it's just really interesting how, how polarized we are on some of these things. What is causing all these fights and quarrels? But what if there is something underlying these relational breakdowns that go deeper than just sort of where you stand on a, a particular issue? What if, is a, um, what if there is something we bring to those issues, to any issues that makes us by nature contentious? I, I was talking to some marriage coaches this week and we were you know, swapping stories. And it's funny how like nine times out of 10, your fight about the thing you are fighting about isn't really about the thing, okay? It's not really about the snow tires. It's not really about the remote. It's not really about the cell phone bill, Um, It wasn't really about the pandemic. Y'all up for some honest self-reflection this morning? Yeah, me neither, but let's do it anyways, because James has this way of making us squirm a little, so why stop now? So let's pick up where we left off with James. Chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme, and you kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. So let's just stop there for a sec. James starts this section of his letter in two very interesting ways. First, he doesn't bring up how to solve conflict. He brings up what causes conflict. And that's interesting because most of us think we already know uh, exactly what causes conflict. Somebody did something or said something that made us mad. You know, We don't need somebody to tell us what made us mad or fight or, or get into that. We know. Um, but that's exactly his point. You don't. You don't know. So what really causes quarrels and fights among you? And then James answers it, in a, in a, in, which is the second way that this is untypical and interesting. He says we get in fights because of what's inside of us. Uh, the call is coming from inside the house, apparently. It's not the other person. It's not what was said or done. It's usually about what's inside of us. We are at war inwardly. So it's natural for us to be at war outwardly. Inner conflict is absolutely going to spill out outwardly. Now, if you're like me, I don't want to hear that because I tend to think that I'm always the justified, aggrieved party. And so however I react is is rational and justified. But James wants to challenge me He wants to challenge you. He wants us to think about the possibility that um, when we get into most of our conflicts, most of our fights, it's because of our own internal junk. And what is that junk? Well, James says it's about what we desire, what we want but don't have, what we covet and would be willing to even kill for. So what's he describing? Envy. Envy, something that he brought up uh, just recently in his letter. In fact, we talked about it last week in a section. Apparently, it's a big enough, important, pervasive, at-the-root-cause issue that he's wanting to bring it up again. If you weren't here with us last week or couldn't focus because of the kids, here's just a quick review. Throughout Scripture, envy is flagged as, as one of the more Deadly sins. In fact, in church history, it's listed as one of the how many? Seven uh, deadly sins by the church because it's more than simply looking at somebody and wishing you had a little bit of what they had. The truth is that envy is poison. And left unchecked, it'll it'll go on the relational warpath. And it begins with desire. We see. Something that somebody has or can do or has achieved and we wish we had it or could do it or had achieved it. But if unchecked, that, that desire actually turns to dislike. You don't just want what they have. You resent them for even having it. It becomes personal. Almost as if they are getting or experiencing what rightly belongs to you. And so you start Internally, maybe at first unconsciously, rooting for them to lose what they have. So you tear down, you attack, you undermine, you sabotage. And if left unchecked in our lives, envy will take that dislike that it has created and lead you to destroy whatever it is that you were desiring of that person's life, which is why envy is like it's like the rabies of the heart. It, it takes over. So it is envy that often puts us into relational conflict with other people. Sometimes its, it's weapons might be that of, of slander or lies or deceit or malice, maybe, maybe even violence. Envy is not going to stop until that which is desired is either possessed or destroyed. That's how insidious it is. Now, why do we envy? If we get into fights and quarrels because of what's going on inside of us, and if what's going on inside of us is envy, and if envy is so destructive that it just leads to fights and quarrels, then, then why are we envying? Well, that's where James goes next. Let's read it. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask You do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely, but He gives us more grace? That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that's a truckload right there. Why do we fight? Because we envy. Why do we envy? Because there are things we want that we don't have. Why don't we have them? Is it just because they've got more talent, more money, more contacts, more luck, more looks, more personality, more ability, more something? That's how we think. And James says we're thinking wrong. It's not because they have more. And again, it's not about them. It's about us. Keep looking inside. We don't have what we long for because we haven't asked God. And if we do ask God, often we're asking with the wrong motives or not for the right things. Here's what James is after. Our fulfillment is to come from God. Living for Him, relating to Him, enjoying Him, abiding in Him, following Him. We were made for Him. We were made for that relationship, which means that if we look to anything other than God to satisfy us, to fill us, we'll come up empty. You know, you think, you think the drugs are inherently worse than being addicted to your career or to power, or to security. All these things can be bondage when they take a greater role in your life than the fulfillment that is supposed to come from Jesus. We're trying to be a friend of the world instead of a friend of God, or more to the point, we're trying to get fulfilled from the world when true fulfillment comes from God. We're trading what matters, what has weight, what has meaning for some cheap knockoff. Uh, millennials? Male- <laughs> <laughs> millennials? Let, me, let Uncle Johnny... No. <laughs> did I hear a groan? Let Uncle Johnny tell you about a time before price scanners and barcodes and QR codes, a time when the only record of what something costs was a little sticker on the, on the item um, <laughs> with the price. Gen X and boomers are like, preach, brother, come on. <laughs> and if you were a mischievous kid like me, you thought it was hilarious to put the 25-cent price tag on the TV. (laughs) And then you take the $50 price tag and put it on a bobby pin. Wait until they find out how crazy the prices are here. Down is up, up is down, cats marrying dogs, it'll be hilarious. (laughs) Guys, this was before video games. I had a lot of time on my hands, okay? So (laughs) parents, put your kids in sports, I guess is what I'm trying to say. What, (laughs) What was valuable had been made cheap, and and what was cheap had been made valuable, and it's kind of indicative of what is happening today throughout our culture. It's like someone has broken into our world and changed all the price tags. As a result, we're not willing to invest in what matters, but man, we'll pour our lives into things that don't. So getting what the world has to offer is everything to us because in our hearts and in our minds, this this life, specifically the material side of this life, is all there is, is all that matters. And maybe that's not what you believe technically. You believe that this life is but a breath and uh, in comparison to what lies ahead at least. You believe in the principle of storing up treasure in heaven you, you want to hear one day, well done, good and faithful servant. But in practicality, in lifestyle, we remain captivated by the here and now, by how much we have, how much we advance, how much we can achieve, how much we enjoy. We let the material outweigh the spiritual because somebody switched the price tags and we bought into it. I know I've, I've read this quote from C.S. Lewis before, but it's such a good quote. He says, we are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then Lewis adds, we are far too easily pleased. So, the ultimate breakdown, um, what will leave you feeling more dissatisfied than anything, is to either look to something other than God or to go to God for cheap, worldly, non spiritual things that aren't even God things. And James says, either way, you're missing out. But then he adds one last thing at the end. Did you catch that? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We, we can get even more out of whack uh, on this than we already are if we add pride into the mix because what pride adds to envy is the idea that we don't even need God. When, when we're trying to find something to fill the emptiness inside of us, in pride we can go as far to think that you know, God doesn't even have anything to offer us that we can't get ourselves. Uh, it's probably the hardest part about ministering in Canada. How do you tell people that they need a Savior if they don't think they need saving from anything? And, and we think we are self-sufficient. We don't think we are needy and broken when we really are. Uh, seeing things as they really are only comes from humility. Maybe our great... Our great spiritual disease, at least in this country, can be summed up in three words that I hear all the time. I got this. I got this. I I hate to be that guy. I would rather give you a motivational, pump-you-up speech about everything that you need is inside of you. But today I got to tell you, on your own, you ain't got this you ain't got this. And it's only when you realize that you ain't got this that you will turn fully to God. Now, right about now, you might be wondering, what can we do about all this? Have you ever heard that expression? Um, now, let me give you the last five percent. You ever heard that? It's like, um, I've told you some hard things already, but But let's just leave nothing unsaid here, okay? Let me give you the last uncomfortable 5%. And here James, I think, wants to say, if I've got your attention, let me give you the last 5%. And here it is. And and let me read it from a very modern translation called The Message. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God, and he'll be there in no time. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It's the only way you'll get on your feet. Now, there's a lot packed in those four verses, but there's a single headline get back on track spiritually. Um, Get connected with God again. Turn your back on what you know dishonors Him or keeps Him out of your life and run toward a life with God. Now, this is a challenge um, specifically for, unique to, those who already consider themselves Christ followers. And some of you here today or who are listening to the podcast, you're, you're exploring Christianity. You're still checking things out, and we're so glad that you are. So you're going to have to just eavesdrop a bit on what James is wanting to convey to those who already believe, who already identify as a Christian. So you can listen in on sort of a family meeting here. Here's what James is concerned about. Someone who identifies as a Christ follower, but who has been living a life that is both in the world and of the world. And it needs to end. Look, we're all in the world. I would argue even that Christians need to be in the world. We are not isolationists. But, but... We are never to be of the world, identified with the world. You're coming to God for some things, but still chasing after the world for others. It's like you've got one foot in and, and one foot out. It's like hedging your bets, it, half heart in, half hard out. So, some sort of compartmentalization where you're a Christian on Sunday and a free agent the rest of the time. You know, the Bible has a word for that. And when you understand what it's saying, you realize it's one of the most devastating words that can ever be said about someone. We talked about this word when we studied the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the churches in the book of Revelation. The Bible calls it being lukewarm. You're not hot, you're not cold. You're lukewarm. Um, in his book uh, Crazy Love, Francis Chan gives his synopsis of what it means to be lukewarm. And if you've ever read Francis Chan, you you know he doesn't mince words. Lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. They don't genuinely hate sin and aren't truly sorry for it, they're merely sorry because of the consequences of their sin. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they themselves never step out. They assume such actions are for extreme Christians. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all his followers. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and he is indeed part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, their thoughts, their money, but he isn't allowed to truly be lord of their lives. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than eternity in heaven. Daily life is focused mostly on today's to-do lists this week's schedule, next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do they intently consider the life that is to come. When they think about the future, it isn't about heaven, but about real estate investments, materialistic gain, comfortable retirement, but not heaven. Lukewarm people don't live by faith. Their lives are so structured, so they never have to. They don't have to trust if something unexpected happens. They have their savings account. The reality is, and this is, A devastating line. Their lives wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. Now, here's the truth we're all lukewarm in one place or another. But James is wanting us to at least care that we're lukewarm. Because if we're given our whole life over to being lukewarm, then God is useless to us. And we kind of become useless to God. If if you read that passage in Revelation, you know that being lukewarm is not something Jesus can indulge. He cannot stomach it, literally. In Revelation, it says it makes him gag. It makes him wretch. And by the way, the goal of Jesus laying us bare isn't to beat us down. It's to wake us up. So how does James end this section of the letter? Weirdly, by bringing us back full circle to, uh, to fights and quarrels, to how we should care for our inner world in ways that allow us to interact with others rightly. And so here's the last two verses of this section. Brothers, do not slander one another Anyone who speaks against his brothers or sisters or judges him or her speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you? Who are you to judge your neighbors? What, I think what James is wanting to end this section with is a very simple idea. He's like, let me take you back to fights and quarrels. And as you keep all that in mind, and what I said about um, your standing with God and, and your lukewarm status, okay, you've got all that. He's like, and, and you're actually critiquing other people? You're judging other people? How about you deal with your own lukewarmness and let God worry about the others? To judge someone is to make assumptions about their character, to, to assume something that you can't really know because you're not omnipotent. When you judge someone, you suspect the worst, and then you act upon that suspicion. Uh, you speak evil about them or, or against them. You, you put them down rather than build them up. You undermine them. You tear them down. And James is saying, whoa, what, what gives you the right What in your resume do you think qualifies you to be their judge? Quit being so hard on people. How about instead worry about yourself? There's there's one judge, and you ain't him. So quit acting like it, you know? Deal with your own lukewarmness. So to circle back, what causes fights and quarrels among you? We do. I do. And James tells us, wake up. Wake up. Stop being being so lukewarm. And, And most of all, see that all of the conflict, all of the stress, all of the tension in our life is coming from a single source. Not letting God be God. Not finding your fulfillment in God. Not realizing what is important and what is eternal. Being a lover of the world. I mean, I, who wants to live a life that makes Jesus want to wretch? James is giving us this, this bracing splash of cold water and honesty here. It's, it's actually more like a slap in the face. And thank you, James, for it, for, for reminding me, for reminding us in the midst of everyday life, in the midst of inflation and mortgage rates going up and, and disappointing governments and an Euler's Leaf final that never tr- happened. And thanks for reminding us, James, about what matters and how we should be living. And when it comes to Jesus, there's only one smart bet. It's, it's all in. Any Jeopardy fans in the house? I kind of got into it again when this guy, this, this genius, James Holtzauer started on this run and he would do something really crazy during this winning streak he was a professional gambler before he was a trivia king and he did this audacious thing whenever he got a daily double which is a chance for you to wager your accumulated money he'd do this gesture anybody know the gesture yeah all in all in a little poker analogy huge risk, not playing it safe, literally not hedging his bets. And maybe this is a silly, crass comparison, but isn't our life with Christ, our commitment to Christ, our devotion to Christ, isn't it supposed to be all in, no compromise, no plan B, no equivocation? I'll close with this story. I've been long fascinated with a certain historical date. Friday, November 2nd, or Friday, November 22nd, 1963. Those of you older than me or as nerdy as me will already know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, on that same date, there's this British playwright, David Lodge. He's in London, England and he's watching one of his uh, performances of his own comedic play in the theater. And there was this scene where an actor in the play, he shows up for a job interview with a, with a portable radio. And, and so the actor would bring in this real, uh, what they used to call, you know, transistor radio, and turn it on and let live music play. And every night it was a little different because it was a real radio with a real radio station. And so every night there'd be different background music or a different commercial or whatever. And he would do the same thing every night. On this particular night, the actor walked in with the radio, turned it on and proceeded with the play. And within a few seconds, uh, a voice came on the radio and it said, We interrupt this program to inform you today that the American president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And the audience audibly gasped, and the actor went off script and switched off the radio, but it was too late. In one sentence, the reality of the outside world shattered the artificial world, the make-believe world of the theater. And suddenly, whatever action took place on stage as they tried to finish the play just seemed so irrelevant, so superficial. And I I wonder if what James wants to do for us is, uh, in the midst of our life going merrily along, We're deeply focused on the fleeting, on the ephemeral, on the momentary. And they seem so important. And then there's a voice, a break in the news. We interrupt this life to tell you this isn't a game. Eternal life is real. Eternal separation from God is real. Jesus isn't a joke. Being lukewarm is spiritual suicide. It's actually making Jesus wretch. In the scope of eternity, your life on planet Earth won't add up to a nanosecond. But but how you live that nanosecond means everything. So live in light of the eternity to come. Live in light of the 100% certainty of your own death. Live knowing that What the world values, God doesn't. And neither should you. They're just, they're shadows. Don't build your life around this life. Build your life around the life to come. James is the radio saying that the God of the universe is alive and he knows your name and he knows your heart. Is that a good thing? Is that a comforting thing? Is that a disturbing thing? I suppose that depends on whether or not in our heart of hearts we're saying, take the world, but give me Jesus. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Take all the fleeting pleasures of this world. I just want Jesus. I'm all in for following Jesus. Amen?